Last week when I began my sermon, I mentioned to you that we're in the Green Sundays, and for the last year or two, I have always said practically uh, in every sermon I preach during the Green Sundays that uh, the principal focus of the uh, Green Sundays, uh, because the subjects are, are um, varied, is about Christian discipleship, the nature, the cost, and the ways and the means. But I also mentioned that the, the uh, Sundays are described in our tradition as Sundays after Pentecost. And in the Roman Catholic Church since Vatican II, they're called Sundays in Ordinary Time. And when the prayer book was being um, revised in the 1970s, this is a little interesting historical footnote. When all the kerfuffle began about the revision of the 28 prayer book, uh, people did not realize or conveniently forgot that the Standing uh, Liturgical Commission was founded in 1946. And so the process that brought us to the 1979 Book of Common Prayer was something that the church was involved with for over 30 years. And so by the time we got to the present prayer book, uh, a lot of work had been done in that regard. In any case, uh, when the changes were taking place and things were happening, uh, Episcopalians, including myself, who always have the tendency to fall into some elitist view or to prefer some form of boutique Anglicanism as opposed to the real deal, which we might call Christianity, <laughs> Uh, thought Sundays in ordinary time, that just sounds so ordinary, right? <laughs> but you know, the ordinary time is anything but ordinary. And a number of Episcopal churches have adopted uh, Sundays in ordinary time as the way in which they describe them in their bulletin. I'm a, more of a prayer book guy, so I use what's there. But there is some... Uh, some reason to do that as a principled position. And I mention it because when you and I talk as we move forward during the green season uh, about the ordinary and the commonplace, that is the location for learning some things about God's will and purpose for you. God's will and purpose for us corporately is the institution we call the church. God's will and purpose for the wider society and God's will and purpose for us as we seek to be faithful in transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love to the world. So I thought I'd use this year in the Green Sundays an occasion always to talk about some, something about the nature of discipleship. And so before I talk about David and Goliath and about the stilling of the storm, I want to say a brief word about the importance of the Sunday. One of the great things about the liturgical renewal and all of the liturgical churches of Western Christianity, churches that have fixed forms of worship, is that they had placed now once again at the center of our common life and our weekly worship the importance and centrality of each Sunday being the celebration of the resurrection. And it used to be, before the prayer book was revised, and certainly in the Roman Catholic Church, if there was a feast day, uh, the feast of Mother Cabrini's shoes, <laughs> you celebrated that instead of 
the Sunday. And now the rule is you never uh, step push the Sunday aside unless it is a feast of our Lord or a feast of the Incarnation, and you're permitted to do it for your patronal festival. So, for example, this year on October the 18th, it falls on a Sunday, so we will celebrate St. Luke's Day on the day, which is the Sunday. So those things you can do for the pastoral realities that we all live in. But Sunday is important, and what attaches to that also uh, is the importance of Sabbath-keeping. And so I hope uh, not th at, in this sermon, but to talk to you about uh, Sabbath-keeping is a wider concept than merely just Sunday, somehow on the day, how you think about what it is that you do, and some kind of, of, of uh, Sabbath-keeping. But I thought I would revive I ran, because I ran across them in my, in my uh, computer. Uh, five ways to be a Christian disciple. It's something we have used here over, the t over time. But I see that the last time I talked about it at all was maybe three years ago. So I thought I'd mention it again. The five marks of a disciple. This is not the definitive list. It is not the only list. There are ways to understand this that require some conversation, but I'm going to read them to you neat and uh, have them in the narthex for the next few weeks so you can pick them up and see what you think. A Christian disciple is one who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship every Sunday, one who witnesses to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant in the Book of Common Prayer, one who seeks to honor the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church, one who uses his or her spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church, and one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. So I mention these for this reason. Remember the Savior invited each one of us to follow him on the way. And this means that we live into the promises of God and we live into an understanding of what it means to be a faithful disciple. None of us can come to this list neat, come into it and say, fine, here I go. We're all struggling on a daily basis with how to be a Christian disciple and the demands and the opportunities that are in front of us in ordinary time. So I offer you these without prejudice and you'll be hearing more as we move forward. Today, I want to preach about David and Goliath, and then about Mark's gospel, and about the stilling of the storm, and how we might make sense of that, all of that in ordinary time. I love the story of David and Goliath. I did read some commentaries this week on the reading uh, from... Uh, people in the fever swamps of political correctness <laughs> who said they thought maybe this wasn't a good thing to preach about or, or it exalted violence too much or it could be too frightening for you, you know, that, that it's just lots of those things. Um, he has been uh, discredited to some degree or at least there's been some recent books within the last five or ten years about him, but there is a famous person in this country who worked for many years with autistic children named Bruno Bettelheim. 
and he was at the Orthogenic Center in Chicago, and he wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment. Some of you may be familiar with it. And in The Uses of Enchantment, he talked about the importance of uh, these stories, even the stories that are violent or very frightening, because the value that they have for children is that they show them that things can turn out all right and that if you use the resources that you have even as a little kid, you're going to be able to overcome evil and difficult things and problems. And so if you develop the internal sense of self-regulation and strength, it's going to make you somebody who is able to cope with the demands and the opportunities that are in front of you. So I've always viewed, subsequent to that, the story of David and Goliath uh, as an example of that. But there's some other things. I decided not to get too much into the history of the ancient Near East and all of that uh, for this sermon. But um, it sounds to me as though Goliath was pretty big. <laughs> probably very tall and probably very scary. And uh, so it was a, a, a tough situation. But here's what I did when I read it and just sat with the text for a while this week. Uh, this guy has challenged the, you know, come out, we'll have a fight, and then if I prevail, you've got to, you know, cave to the Philistines, and if, if I don't, vice versa, or some version of this. And uh, so David uh, decides he's going to go do this. Remember what we had last week. David was anointed as the future king of Israel by Samuel. Uh, he isn't the king yet. It's going to be a while. He's a young shepherd boy. And the purpose of reading this last week was to set the reader up and ha its location in 1 Samuel to say, this, this person holds great promise for Israel. He will be an example of the halcyon days of Israel. He will be its high watermark in many ways, and his son Solomon. And that there are special qualities about him that uh, produced uh, Samuel's anointing of him as the future king. So David decides he's going to go do this and be the challenger or meet, meet, uh, meet the challenger Goliath. Here's what I like when I sat with the text. Saul, the king who is turning out as we're reading through this. These are good stories to read in the Bible. If you're looking for something to read in the Bible, this is one in the Hebrew Bible. These are good. First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. These are good books to read. So he uh, decides that uh, he's going to do this, and Saul says, here, you need to put on my armor. Have you ever had somebody give you some advice on how to meet a challenge and opportunity, and here's what you ought to do? So David puts all this stuff on. He can hardly walk in it, yeah. right? Now think about it in metaphorical terms, maybe sort of the cultivation of an emotional state or some kind of a um, way of thinking or being or an approach to a problem. And don't you begin to say, okay, I guess I'll do it because I have some respect and admiration for the person suggesting it. And then you just say to yourself, you know what? This isn't me. <laughs> I can't even walk in this stuff. And I'm not going to be able to go out and do that, or I can't approach this, and so forth. You know, one of the most challenging things to the clergy is preaching sermons. 
And I have to tell you personally, I have never ha received any value from any professor who taught preaching. <laughs> and I know that I, I absolutely uh, contradict every fundamental tenet of what they tell you you're supposed to do. I mean this. I say this without prejudice in the sense that many of them are well-meaning, some of them are good preachers themselves, but I just said to myself, geez, I cannot do it this way, so I'm going to have to sink or swim, right? So David decides that he's going to do that, and he goes out as the shepherd boy with his staff and with a slingshot. I think in the ancient Near East, by the way, I, I read somewhere in some long time ago in some commentary, these slingshots aren't some kid's toy. They're pretty lethal, and they can kill big things with them if, if they learn how to be proficient. So it wasn't exactly as though he was, you know, sort of being foolish about this. But what is involved in this, thinking about yourself and a challenge in front of you? It's having some sort of an interior sense of self, some sort of ability to remain non-anxious and confident in the midst of an enormous threat and great fear and difficulty, and uh, the, the ability to be able to uh, speak the truth to power which is something that he did with Goliath and told him about uh, who, what he represented and what was going to happen. And so he endured a great deal of uh, pushback, clearly. And then uh, after the thing transpired at the end of the story, he kills Goliath with a shot in the forehead. I'm sure this story has been highly stylized over time, you can imagine, right? It's about one of the heroes of the people of Israel but I always look at it as a story that gives people encouragement to stand up to the things that they need to and also that sometimes strength can come from weakness. So that you and I don't have to be always apt in every area. We don't have to be the strongest. We don't have to be the most clever. We just have to have those interior uh, qualities that we cultivate over time with God's help to be able to rise to the occasion, to be able to have that kind of strength and stamina that we need uh, to meet the challenges that we all meet. Sometimes this is very challenging because the enemy that we encounter is a Goliath. It could be an illness. It could be some kind of an, a personal uh, family difficulty. It could be a problem at work. It could be uh, problems generally that we have to cope with now as the, the people of a country who is suffering some uh, difficulties with our economic life together. And you know, it, 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 there, there are times here uh, we get it, it, when I think, what can happen next, right? As you march through things with, with people in their lives. So this story is that out of that and out of that vulnerability comes God's care and protection and it often comes as the result of our being able to take responsibility for what it is that we need to do. And that's what David is an example of, I think. So that's lesson one in this green ordinary time uh, that we might be able to rise to the occasion. Now, Mark's gospel, as I mentioned to you, is the earliest of the gospels and Mark has some views about who Jesus was that are always present uh, in his telling of the, of, of the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
His gospel is the shortest of all the gospels and is the most urgent in terms of the way in which it is, it is written. And in this uh, reading, we have the stilling of the storm. And it's here for a reason. Jesus has finished, I guess, preaching to a number of people, and he gets in a boat to go over to the other side, it says, gets in the boat with some of the disciples, and there are other boats around him, and while they're crossing, there's a storm that comes up, and the boat fills with water, and uh, people are very frightened, and uh, it looks like they may not make it, and there's a lot of bailing going on, and finally somebody comes over and shakes Jesus, who's out like a light in the boat, and he wakes him up and says, aren't you afraid that we're about to perish? So he, he finally wa he wakes up and he looks at the situation and he commands the sea to be still and it stops. Now remember the thought world who were alive when Mark's gospel was produced and before that, the people uh, out of w that, that we now call Jews, in their tradition, Yahweh, the name for God, stills the storms, makes, uh, uh, has control over the natural phenomena, and then so does Jesus. And Jesus does this. And Mark's point is that this man is, well, here's what Reginald Fuller said, the great biblical scholar. Jesus is the prophet in whom God is epiphanously present. Now that's the 3995 <laughs> explanation for what we're talking about here, right? In this man's words and in this man's works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And so if God were a human being and walking around or in a boat, this is what he'd do and this is what would happen. So Mark has put this in the gospel and we have the predictable result in Mark's gospel. They all go, <laughs> who is this that stills the sea? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> right? Some biblical scholars call it the messianic secret. There are others who say we don't want to get there anymore. It's an old idea. But there is clearly something that always remains hidden in Mark's gospel, and people aren't copying to this. They don't get it. They can't put two and two together very easily, you know? Jesus has control in Mark's gospel over the natural phenomenon that occur, and Jesus has control also over the unseen world, the world of the spirits and the demons. And in Mark's gospel, all of the demons and all of the spirits know Jesus by name, and they tell him that they know who he is. And they affirm his messiahship, and they affirm that he's the Son of God, and they affirm that they're very frightened of him because they know that he has power over them. So Mark's gospel is about how God has you know, control of things, and now because we're speaking about the person of Jesus, that he embodies in his life these things. I read this uh, in, a, in sort of this way. If you hear me say all the time that Jesus Christ is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as it says in the epistle to the Hebrews, the template we lay over our own spiritual life and development, then that means that we too can 
learn how to have control over the unseen world, particularly our internal demons and the difficulties we struggle with, and perhaps a, an ability to cope with how the unseen world affects those near and dear to us, or maybe not so near and dear, but people that we got to work with and be with in our lives. And that somehow we understand that as we become more emotionally mature, that that has enormous spiritual consequences and that these things in some way are all interconnected and so that the storms that are mentioned here which are the natural storms that are described in the story are also a metaphor for the internal storms and stresses that you and I go through on a daily basis and that if we believe in a God who unconditionally loves, accepts and forgives us that in some way we are now going to be able to bring some sense of serenity to our internal states and if you remain non-anxious and have developed the internal regulation and strength to do this you will have an influence on other people because whoever you're connected to is going to be affected by your sense of calm and serenity and that you have learned some way in which to be able therefore to be more uh, able to cope and maybe that's what this is about because those who followed Jesus said, you know, I've learned some things about how to be a better human being and I've connected the dots because being a better human being uh, is, is, has deep religious significance. And because of that, I realize now uh, that uh, this is bigger than I thought it was initially. And the implications of who Jesus is and what Jesus means uh, is something that is uh, infinitely knowable and has many, many aspects. So the stilling of the storm has something to do with how God can be present to us both externally and internally. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So uh, this week I guess the lesson might be from David and Goliath to know that being yourself and not having to become somebody else in order to cope uh, is a possibility and that you don't have to be the strongest or the most apt person uh, in order to be able to rise to the occasion and as you develop a con confidence and a sense of self and a commitment to your own vision and self-understanding you may be able to have some influence in the world and know that God is present to you in an unconditional way forgiving, loving and accepting you and by virtue of that, it allows you to uh, be calmer. And that the storms and stresses that are both internal and external, you can cope with better. I, I've said this to you before. Have you ever been like in a family situation or in the wider family or friendship? And we're all in a, and you know somebody who behaves like an electric transformer, right? The anxiety is present in the field. <laughs> and this individual ratchets it up to amps it up. I guess these days, yeah, right? And everybody is like, <laughs> right? And you thought, how did that happen? You know? And you have the ability to ratchet it down because you just haven't let it affect you the way it, it did before. So, now remember, this is a process so that means you were really good in one particular case and you just amped it down 
and then the next time it all of a sudden got out of control again and you just didn't do the job you thought you were going to do. Don't beat yourself up about that, right? Because this is the invitation to follow the Savior on the way. So take that seriously. Amen.